This is KOOP HD1, HD3, Hornsby. The following was homecrafted and recorded on Monday, December 13th. Welcome to the Austin Chronicle Show. My name's Mike Clark Madison. And I am the news editor of the Austin Chronicle, Austin's independent source of news and culture reporting since 1981. And so I'm filling in here for Kim Jones this week, and I've got a treat for you. I've got the entire Chronicle news team crammed into your radio to talk about the year that was this is our top 10 issue on the stands this week and the news section has the top 10 stories of the year which we organize in chronological order rather than try to compare apples and oranges or decide which of our babies we love the best so we just start the beginning and go through the end and all of our writers beth sullivan lena fisher morgan o'hanlon austin sanders are here to add their insight about the stories that they've covered throughout the year. So, 2021, starting back in February. You may remember Valentine's Day, there was a little bit of significant weather that kind of defined how lots of things worked for the entire year. Lena, tell us about Winter Storm Uri. Yeah, I'll try to sum it up. I think the headline of the story for me is realizing how fragile the structure that holds up the everyday society is because things happen so quickly. Starting on February 14th, we had this big storm and we were supposed to initiate rolling blackouts, but because of the demand on the power grid was so high, that actually wasn't an option. So 40% of Austin Energy customers ended up without power and subsequently heat. So you were lucky if you had a gas stove so you could melt some snow to flush the toilet. And then on top of all that, a water treatment plant went down and we didn't have any water either. So it was a kind of an intense situation. One thing that stood out to me was a lot of volunteer groups and mutual aid organizations were on the ground first before the city response, transporting unhoused people to hotels and paying with their own cards for those stays. We learned a lot about the highest up in Texas government as Ted Cruz flew to Cancun. And there were some awkward press conferences with people in warmly lit rooms. Learned a lot about um, critical infrastructure, which was the part downtown where a lot of businesses ended up staying on. If you were near a hospital, probably kept your power. But I think like, you know, the thing that was the worst about it was the after effects that extended for months afterwards. So, you know, even once we got our power back, some people were still without water until March because of burst pipes. And, you know, there was just a backlog of plumbing services. What was heartening, I think, was that all these sort of volunteer organizations popped up to fill that need. So one of those was Austin Needs Water, which was a really unique collaboration between the Austin Firefighters Association and campaign workers. And they were sort of jerry-rigging these, like, water buckets to <laughs> in, like, apartment complex parking lots. It was a really interesting sort of phenomenon. And then I guess this sort of extends throughout the entire year, as you were saying, as the city auditor released a report in November, basically saying that, you know, not only can we not depend on our independent power grid, but we also were pretty unprepared as a city for a disaster response of this kind. 
So we didn't have any winter equipment to clear roads with. We don't even have like, you know, salt like other cities up north. So that probably contributed to organizations like the MS having a difficult time responding to calls. And I think also we realized that the response wasn't sufficiently equitable. So there were a lot of alerts that were sent out in English beforehand, you know, severe weather alerts, but the Spanish ones didn't come for like four days after that. So there's just a lot that we have to think about, I guess, as a city going forward, you know, and how do we prepare for this kind of thing in the future? And, oh, I should mention also, you know, we had a pretty significant death toll, 28 people in Travis County. So I guess like to wrap this up, the negative, we haven't really changed much. Sort of the design of the power grid is that there's really no incentive for energy providers to keep a reserve supply as it is deregulated. We also are independent from the rest of the country, so we can't share power with them in an event of an extreme weather event. But I think what I take heart in is that even if we can't rely on the powers that be, we definitely can rely on our neighbors. We saw that everybody sort of sprang into action to help each other much more quickly than the city did. So I would say there's pros and cons that came from this situation. So this all happened during the legislative session. The legislature convened in January, right in time for the insurrection in D.C., which didn't really have that much of an impact in Austin. Everybody just kind of looked at each other and made sure that no one was like shooting at each other. Alan West walked around with a nice suit on, and that was about it. But they got into the meat of the session and it was very red bloody meat this session and it didn't involve much work to fix the grid so there was a sort of a brief bit of activity between the house and the senate about what they were going to do and they didn't really end up doing very much but greg abbott has now guaranteed that you're going to have power this winter so let's see if that happens The legislature did find time to do a whole bunch of stuff that probably wasn't as pressing as fixing the damn grid. Beth, you kept an eye on a lot of the stuff that was happening at the legislature, particularly as it involved the LGBTQ community and bills that had tried to be passed but never actually got passed in years before that were going to limit trans children's participation in sports and daily activities at school. But that didn't happen this time. So, Yeah, this is the ledge session that never seemed to end. There were three special sessions on top of the regular session. And as we've reported at the Chronicle, there were several issues that were fueled by progressive priorities, such as healthcare coverage, public safety, that there really wasn't much progress made on that front. And you just alluded to some of that, Mike. But the big national headlines was Texas Dems breaking quorum twice, mainly to stall passage on the voter restriction bill, Senate Bill 1. But as we saw, pretty much every single Dem returned for the third and seemingly final special session, where we also saw the passage of House Bill 25, which is a anti-trans sports ban targeting K-12 student-athletes at public schools, which effectively bans trans children from participating on the sports team that aligns with their gender. And as Mike mentioned, this is the first 
anti-trans legislation that Texas has passed successfully in a very long time. Texas came close in 2017 with the bathroom bill, but that bill never made it to Abbott's desk that died in the House. And this year overall had the most anti-LGBTQ legislation proposed across state houses in the United States and Texas um, had the unwelcome distinction of leading that pack as having the most anti-LGBTQ bills introduced. And I think, you know, one, this bill is part of a larger attack that has been happening on trans kids' rights in the sports realm across many states for almost two years now. And I think going into the new year, when HB 25 goes into effect, I believe it's January 18th, I think, you know, this will be something to watch if there will be any legal challenge brought over this. It's certainly part of a larger conversation, I think, happening where within the last five to seven years, there have been more and more anti-discrimination protections established for queer and trans citizens at the federal level. At the same time, though, you're seeing more attacks happening at the state level on on certain rights and protections. So, yeah, something to watch now, something to watch into the new year. All right. And then the biggest headlines generated by the Texas legislature this year, even more so than the quorum break and all the other crazy stuff that they were doing, like critical race theory and all that was they finally figured out a way to ban abortion in Texas after having tried for multiple years with multiple strategies. They came up with what is now Senate Bill 8, which not only bans abortion care after fetal cardiac activity can be detected, which is about six weeks, which means basically a ban because most women and pregnant people don't know they're pregnant by that point. And also the you know, crazy vigilante scheme that they came up with to enforce it so that they wouldn't get shot down in federal court as they have time and time again. And as bills like this have in other states, so they came up with this way of like everybody just gets to file suit against everybody else. And so vigilante bounty hunters can sue abortion providers or anyone who aids and abets an abortion. And there's a $10,000 bounty reward for the people who successfully sue. So this is a big mess. And it went to the Supreme Court, who just last week decided that, yeah, actually, we're kind of okay with this system. That kind of raises more questions than it answers. We still don't know whether the Supreme Court, what they're going to do about Roe v. Wade and the reproductive rights in general, based on a different case. But we already now have another state, California, saying that they're going to do this same vigilante scheme to go after gun owners or gun makers. So we'll see how long that lasts when it gets to the Supreme Court. Another thing that the ledge did find time to do, other than fix the grid, was go after the city of Austin, in particular, for defunding its police force. And that was part of what was kind of bigger than other stories this year. It was just kind of the ongoing drama between the city of Austin and its police department. 
and its voters and its council and its district and county attorney and all of these people. Austin Sanders. This actually starts like the same week as Winter Storm Yuri when Brian Manley finally decides that after months of being persona non grata at City Hall and, you know, an object of ire for thousands of citizens, that he was going to quit. So what happened? This is like a cool thing of doing these top 10 lists because like I had totally forgotten that Brian Manley's resignation happened like the same time as the winter storm, but doing this kind of like puts the whole year into context in that way. But yeah, right around the time the storm hit, Brian Manley finally announced his retirement as we put it, the prolonged but inevitable announcements. I guess tensions really kind of soared between Manley and the council and criminal justice advocates. In late 2019, when revelations about a former assistant chief regularly using racist language against Black people surfaced, and Brian Manley kind of sat on that news for a while. He went on vacation before deciding how to respond to these allegations, which was all revealed in a third-party investigation that's come to be known as the Tatum Report, which really became a critical piece of evidence used against Brian Manley in the push to remove him from the police department as the chief. But despite, as we know in the story, the city council taking a no confidence vote and a resolution in Manley's leadership, he seemed to have found an ally in city manager Spencer Cronk, who many people learn is the only person who could have removed Manley from that position, if not outright fired him. And he didn't do that. Manley got to kind of keep his job through the Tatum report scandal and into 2020 when APD officers, you know, responded brutally to protesters in the streets, mostly in front of APD headquarters downtown, who were out protesting following the police killings of George Floyd in Minneapolis and, of course, Michael Ramos in Southeast Austin, which occurred about a month before George Floyd was killed by police. And Brian Manley's officers, you know, over two days, shot protesters with these bags filled with lead pellet rounds, which permanently injured some people. There are several pending civil lawsuits over this. And after the first day that happened, Manley didn't change tactics. He sent his officers back out there to do the same thing and cause more injuries. So this was just more evidence of his failed leadership, which actually kind of inspired the no confidence vote at council. But he still survived those scandals as well and really got to retire on his own terms. After more than 20 years at APD, I guess about three, two and a half as chief and is, you know, enjoying private employment in a security firm. He got to go out on his own terms, which was kind of a frustration, I think, for some advocates, but definitely glad to see him go. Even if the next leader who followed him was another APD hire, first interim chief, Joseph Chacon, who was one of Manley's assistant chiefs, who was later nominated and confirmed as the permanent chief earlier this year in September. But the union, the Austin Police Association and criminal justice advocates both were not pleased with Chacon's selection for different reasons. Each wanted 
an outside hire, someone who didn't come up in APD's toxic culture, exposed by the Tatum report. I mean, that's kind of the justice advocates. The union had issues with Manley as well as Chacon. But Chacon is kind of trying to make the department his own. He's made some changes to the assistant chiefs, the executive team, elevated the victim services manager to report directly to him to kind of give that branch of the department more authority. So we'll see how his tenure goes. He's definitely being watched very closely. Just a reminder that you're listening to KOOP 91.7 in Austin, streaming through koop.org. One of the things that happened over the course of the year with all of this lingering after effects of the conflict between the city and city council and APD and APD Brass and the Austin Police Association is the reemergence of a GOP-fronted political action committee called Save Austin Now, which actually got its start last year in 2020, trying to collect signatures to, to reinstate the city's band on public camping that had been overturned in 2019 by the city council. Due to COVID and various other things, took a very long time to get their signatures together. They had originally intended, I think, for it to be on the ballot in November 2020, and it was going to like drive Republican turnout. And that didn't happen. So it ended up on the May 2021 ballot, which became kind of a chaotic special election because in addition to voting on this Save Austin Now reinstating the camping ban, you know, recriminalizing homelessness, we also had this whole effort from Austinites for Progressive Reform to try to change to a strong mayor system kind of out of nowhere. In part, address some of the issues that had been raised by the conflict over Brian Manley and that Spencer Cronk had not fired him. And so that motivated people to thinking, well, maybe we should go to a strong mayor system instead of having a city manager and then the mayor could fire Brian Manley. Well, by the time this actually got to the ballot in May, Manley was gone, things had changed. And the strong mayor proposition lost by a huge margin, considering that they'd spent several hundred thousand dollars to try to get it on the ballot. But the camping ban did, in fact, pass. And Save Austin now raised and spent like $1.5 million on this measure that ultimately ended up being redundant because the legislature passed their own ban on public camping statewide that took the place of it. So anyway, Save Austin now, though, got like real full of itself and decided that they were going to come back in November with another measure, which was going to require that Austin maintain a police force with at least two officers per 1,000 residents of the city, which would mean a police force of about 2,000 people, which is about 500 more than we have, which would have ended up costing between 50 and $100 million over the course of five years, each year over the course of five years, I'd say, to bring the police force up to speed. And this is something that the police union had wanted for a long time. And they were writing what they thought was their success in the summer, plus a increase in homicides that was also happening throughout the country, all the way into November when 
they thought they had a better chance than they did, and they got completely poured out. It was like almost as bad as Strong Bear had lost back in May. So there was much licking of wounds afterwards by Save Austin now. But the upshot of it is that we've got a fully funded police department, and we're kind of leery about adding any more money to the police department because then we're going to be locked into keeping it forever because of the state law that I just mentioned earlier about defunding the police. So that's all that happened at the election front. And at the same time, leading up to that, before the actual defeat of Save Austin now, when they and the police association were thinking that their chances were going to be a little better and they were a little more cocky about their stance regarding criminal justice reform, that we ended up in August with this big conflict Donnybrook between the two Garzas, Jose and Delia Garza, prosecutor, DA, county attorney, and the police association and the city. So, Austin, you picked up that story for us. Yeah, so we had seen this kind of one-sided conflict, right, between primarily the Austin Police Association and the Combined Law Enforcement Associations of Texas, the kind of statewide cop union group really attacking Jose Garza, mostly, but also Delia Garza for their criminal justice reform policies, which they campaigned on prominently and were elected to enact. But, you know, of course, this is something we've seen play out across the country where reform prosecutors are elected. The local police groups kind of say that these efforts are making communities less safe and more dangerous. And that's exactly what happened here. But in August, we saw kind of the first counterpunch from the elected prosecutors. Both Jose and Delia Garza wrote a letter to Austin City Manager Spencer Cronk, basically demanding a response to anecdotes they had heard from constituents, accusing some Austin police officers or refusing to investigate some suspected criminal activity because of these reform policies. Basically, some cops were telling people, hey, we can't investigate these crimes because of stuff that Jose Garza and Delia Garza are doing, so go complain to them, which is just not true. These policies don't exist. What policies do exist is what's known as arrest review And these are basically policies enacted in both Jose Garza's district attorney's office and Delia Garza's county's attorney's office aimed at screening potential arrests before the person is booked into jail to determine if the evidence gathered warrants the arrest. If the officer thinks the person has committed a crime, if they are actually breaking the law, you know. There's a lot of different statutes and laws on the books, and it can be difficult to keep track of them all. So basically, if a cop wants to arrest someone in Travis County, they call the DA's office or the county attorney's office and talk to a prosecutor to say, hey, here's what I got. This is what I think they did. Here's the evidence I found. And the prosecutor signs off on the arrest, and then the arrest can be affected. Policies like this have existed in other Texas counties. Harris County is probably the most notable. For years, you know, in El Paso County, I think they established a arrest review process in the 90s. So these are not new approaches to screening arrests. And they are kind of viewed in the 90s. I think they were viewed as kind of like a cost savings measure, right? 
a way to be more efficient in building stronger cases as well in terms of the justice system. Now they're a way of keeping people out of jail, especially for those who are committed like nonviolent drug offenses. Those are just offenses that both Garza said they would not prosecute people for. And this is a way that these two offices can keep people out of jail from even being booked into jail for these offenses. So now they're kind of characterized as these far left progressive measures that make communities less safe when that's just really not what the data bears out. You know, it shows that most people who are prevented from being arrested under these policies, again, are nonviolent drug offenses, people who have been determined by the prosecutors and law enforcement to not be dangerous to communities. Austin Police Association President Ken Cassidy, of course, you know, says that these policies violate state law, are making Austin less safe. There's, you know, not been any action taken against either office for, as Cassidy says, violating the state law around arrest procedures. So that has not been proven in any way. And in fact, in a statement, Cassidy said, if officers are doing what both Garza say they're doing, that's wrong and they should stop doing it, which is kind of agreeing that it's not how officers should be responding to implementation of arrest review policies. And in fact, about a month after this letter came, when the police leadership, Interim Chief Joseph Chacon, and Assistant City Manager Ray Ariano kind of asked Delia Garza, at least, to stop this policy. About a month after that, Chacon implemented the policy. It's now official APD policy to cooperate with arrest reviews at the county attorney and DA's office, which, you know, even if Chacon is not celebrating this as a progressive move forward, it's at least tacit endorsement that it's good policy. And that's kind of how that saga concluded. Yeah, just another example of a whole year's worth of slowly bringing criminal justice reform to life in Austin, just like people voted for, and the cop lobby dragging its feet and putting it to the test, and then, like we said, getting poured out in November. Speaking of nonviolent drug offenses... (laughs) bringing us home here. Morgan, tell us about Delta 8. Yes. So after a year of weird, stressful and or bad news, at least you can walk out to your gas station or local smoke shop and buy what is essentially some really weak weed. Delta 8 was made temporarily legal here in Texas as a result of a court case that happened this fall. The situation that gave us this result is that in October, the Department of State Health Services decided to post a notice on its website that said, hey, guys, Delta 8 is actually legal and has been for the last year or so. So that came as a surprise to thousands of retailers throughout the state who had been vending this product for the last year. And they decided to say, well, you guys violated the Open Meetings Act by giving insufficient notice. And so we're going to take y'all to court. And the judge rolled with them. So the state basically decided in a death gasp kind of move, decided to try an appeal. That appeal was unsuccessful. So now we're left with Delta 8 access here. Basically, what this means looking forward is that the will of the state to kind of fight back on 
specifically like weed and marijuana policy, I feel like it's kind of going away. Even though it's not weed itself, it's kind of a big-ish victory on the weed front because this just really opens the door for allowing cannabis products to be sold in the state. If we have Delta 8, then there's not really testing infrastructure throughout the state to distinguish that from some of the other cannabinoids, which give off much more similar effects to actually like going out and smoking a joint or something. So (laughs) so it kind of opens a Pandora's box there. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's, you know, the state of Texas has been trying to legalize, but also criminalize cannabis at the same time that they want industrial hemp and all the money that goes with that, but they don't want to make weed legal because Baptists and Dan Patrick, and even though weed is effectively legal through most of the state as it is. So this is about to wrap us up. I know that we haven't mentioned COVID not even once. And we know that it was of course a big deal this year with the Delta variant from Delta eight to the Delta variant. And now the Omicron variant Beth, is there any latest news on that front about who's going to get to wear a mask or not wear a mask? Or I don't know about latest, but, you know, obviously the biggest story with COVID this year everywhere is the advent of vaccines and the rollout of that. But again, this summer, we saw the rise of the transmissible Delta variant. There was a huge surge here in Texas, across the U.S., and... At that same time, here in Texas, at the end of July, you had Governor Abbott issue an executive order banning local governments from issuing local mask mandates. And I think why that was so significant, not just the shock value of state officials seemingly bucking public health advice for the umpteenth time, feels like in Texas, but at at the same time, it was right before school started in Texas and many schools were having to return to in-person due to new guidance from the TEA as far as funding and offering virtual options. And also at the same time, the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine had not yet been approved for children ages 5 to 11. So there was much concern and organizing around mask mandates when it came to school districts in Texas when Abbott issued his executive order. And we had Bear County and Dallas County going after trying to block the enforcement of Abbott's ban. And then here in Austin, we had Mayor Adler and Travis County Judge Andy Brown issue respective orders requiring face masks while in or on city and county properties, as well as in public schools. And Austin ISD also implemented their own mask mandate for all campus facilities. And we had AISD superintendent, Dr. Stephanie Elizalde, really coming out and being pretty political about making this choice to implement a mask mandate for the district. And that also made national headlines as well, Dr. Elizalde's efforts there. So this was all just an echo really of COVID news from 2020 that we saw with state officials and local officials going to bat over who can implement certain kinds of safety measures when it comes to a pandemic. And it will probably continue as long as COVID's around. 
It'll probably continue well into 2022. Fun-filled, action-packed year just over the horizon here. Well, that is about all the time we have for today on the Austin Chronicle show. Thank you so much to my delightful Chronicle News team. Morgan O'Hanlon, Austin Sanders, Lena Fisher, Beth Sullivan, Brant Bingaman. Thank you to our show engineers, Bob Daly and Andrew Sullen. Thank you for Kevin Curtin and Jonas Wilson for writing the Austin Chronicle show theme music. And to leave you today, we're going to go back to the classics in honor of the top 10 issue that is on the stands right now, going all the way back to 1860-something with Gilbert and Sullivan and the Mikado and John Reed and the English National Opera singing, I've Got a Little List. Talk to you guys next time.